Welcome to the Food Fight podcast from EIT Food, exploring the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations on entrepreneurs looking to solve them. I'm your host, Matt Eastland. Great to have you with us. So stepping into 2022, the food industry and consumers have lots of exciting things to look forward to. So we've got new entrepreneurs, ideas and technologies making their way to the market. And as well as this, COP26 from last year has given us renewed hope as we work together to tackle the ongoing effects of climate change, with the food system set to play an increasingly important role. So with this fresh sense of purpose, today we're exploring the emerging trends in the food system for 2022 and beyond. On the podcast today, I'm really excited to welcome Ed Bergen, who's the Senior Analyst for Food and Nutrition at FutureBridge. FutureBridge tracks and advises on the future of industries from a one to 25 year perspective, keeping businesses ahead of the technology curve by identifying new opportunities, markets and business models. And they try to answer your unknowns and facilitate best fit solutions and partnerships. Ed is a specialist in the food and drink arena. In fact, he was also on our previous trends show back in 2021 as well. So it's a real pleasure to have you back, Ed. Yeah, it's really exciting. Thank you very much for having me. It's really fun. So, Ed, before we go on, can you tell me a little bit more about your work at FutureBridge and how does FutureBridge work with different parts of the agri-food industry in particular? I joined FutureBridge at the end of last year. They're a bit different in the research world in comparison to roles that I've had in the past. They are really focused on the newest developments in technologies in some ways, you know, I said, actually, let's put it like this. The team that I'm in, so I'm, I'm part of the food and nutrition team, they are made up of, and this is not someone I am, which I'll tell you about in a minute, as an, I'm a classicist. They're made up of engineers and food technologists and crazy scientists, biotechnicians, probably terms that I, I won't even understand if they gave me their CVs. And it's a team full of researchers like this. So, FutureBridge is just focused on trying to understand the newest technologies appearing in various industries. And if I look at food and nutrition, it means that they're looking at patents filed, university papers and pieces of research that have been published, looking at startups and the different technologies that a startup has been launching. And it, that not, that's not necessarily a product mm -hmm. that might be a new piece of equipment in a factory that does something new or a new process that they've invented and really trying to understand how that technology might have an explosive impact in 5, 10, 20, 25 years. So they're really looking at those early signals to predict where the industry is going. So in terms of the agri-food sector, they're going to be looking at how new factory equipment or new farming equipment might make the agricultural procedures more sustainable, how we can recycle better, how we can, I know, farm seaweed, for example. Yeah. So that looking at some of those really early stages, also how you can take certain ingredients and let's say, put them through a process of fermentation to create a piece of meat that really tastes like meat, but then they've taken a chickpea to do it. So they're looking at all parts of that, I guess, early part of the food production side and seeing where that can go in terms of the launches that eventually hit our shelves. Hope that makes some level of sense. I'll probably talk a little bit more about it as we go. Yeah, it totally does. Thanks, Ed. It sounds like a fascinating place to be working. And, Especially if you're uh, not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Everything blows well, my mind. Well, that's a great place to be. So big congrats on the new role. And, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking us through that. 
So let's just take us back then to last year. And so, like we said, so you, you were on our 2021 trends episode and we talked a lot then about how the industry should bounce back after COVID-19. With 2021, as it turned out, still being a really tough year in terms of the pandemic, did the year go as you expected in terms of you know what you were predicting and anything that you weren't expecting to see or anything that surprised you? So some of them did. We, we know that there was some level of recovery in terms of consumer behavior. We went from, you know, a lockdown staying at home culture to some people getting out and about. However, I think we believe that COVID would have improved mm. somewhat by now. So there, we're still going in and out of lockdowns. Omicron hasn't helped, as we can see, which means that maybe some of the launches, some of the innovations that we were hoping to see over the course of this year probably were still put on hold or slowed down because brands focused on you know, mainstream products, getting food to customers, yeah. um, probably didn't have as many opportunities to sell brand new innovations to consumers as much as maybe we thought that they would have done a year ago. And I guess consumers probably didn't really have the headspace for some of those kind of new innovations. And they, like you say, they just wanted to actually get the food on the shelves and be able to buy them. Yeah, well, look, absolutely. I think there's some consumer changes in, in kind of consumer behavior that have definitely happened. If you think about health and well-being, actually, health and well-being is a funny one. There's two things that have happened. I think one of them is consumers have realized that they're vulnerable and that, you know, health is really important. And some consumers have therefore focused on eating in a more balanced diet, supplementing their foods with vitamins and supplements, which has been a big thing this year, like immunity. At the same time, there've been other consumers that are like, I'm living life to the full. And actually they've gone out, they've seen their mates again, they're eating maybe not the healthiest food all the time, and they're trying to enjoy life because we only have mm. one. So there has been, which isn't a great answer of where's the consumer behavior going. So it's, it's kind of either, a, it's gone super healthy or super indulgent. Yeah, and I think people have also realized that it's fine to be indulgent. We shift, I think the language has shifted away from indulgence being a big stigma. Mental health has been massive this year, and it's not just mm. about having, you know, functional foods that support brain health. Also, it's just having chocolate, and that's cool. That's fine. And there's maybe been less of a stigma about just having a treat and enjoying yeah. it. So there's been a mixture of things happening as a result of the, the previous year. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. I mean, that that was definitely one of the things I remember you predicting, and it's interesting that has actually played out. I mean, some of the other more specific trends we spoke about, so science in food production, I think, was one of them where we were talking about new ways to source and produce food, vertical farming, growing, you know, growing in a dark place under a, under a bridge, those sorts of things that we spoke about. Given what you're saying about some of these you know, maybe not having the headspace, some of the launches not going ahead. Do you think that trend really happened? Did it accelerate? We may not have seen them on the shelf because at this rate, th these are all things that are happening, you know, at a production sort of level. However, there are lots of things going on. And I think the most important thing that's going on is that very large companies, and I'll give you a couple of examples, are starting to invest in new ways to produce food. So one of our future bridge analysts was just looking at how some of these larger companies, we had examples from Starbucks and General Mills, you know, some big large food companies are investing in new regenerative agriculture techniques. So in their supply chains, stuff like 
looking at plant-resistant trees instead of chopping down trees, trying to focus on deforestation and trying to focus on monitoring soil health. Some of these new claims that we're appearing at a product level, but we are starting to see being sponsored and supported by very large food players that are working you know, at a consumer face-to-face sort of level. So we may not have seen it necessarily on the shelf with big claims, but we're definitely seeing changes appearing in the market. So there are things happening without a doubt. So the research has been continuing in the background and, you know, maybe maybe that means that this year and going forwards, we'll start to see those come out. That's cool. And the last couple of things we've spoke about was because of the pandemic, there was a a bigger focus from bigger brands and some smaller brands on sort of cleanliness, safety, making people feel secure in the food that they were eating. Do, do you see that that continued last year? Do you think that's going to carry on? So I don't necessarily think it's the selling point, maybe as much as it was a year ago, because you'd have products that was a selling point. We are clean, dramatizing the food production process to show you know how clean and tidy they are. I do think it's becoming a given. If you're a brand that isn't showing that you're sanitary or talking about it a little bit or having that reputation with a consumer, they will go somewhere else. But whether that's the thing that a brand is their, their main selling point, you know, there was a point where we were saying that all of our a manufacturer would say all of our staff working in our factories are masked, are gloved, are, yeah. you know, we're clean. I don't think it's as important now. I think consumers have, have got past that. It was for a while, but it's a bit of a given, you know. Yeah, you it's become, be what's, what's that phrase? Table stakes, right? It's everyone's brought themselves up to that standard, but it's not really a USP anymore. Yeah, exactly. So it became a USP, it's done now, and and that's it. Okay, got it. Okay, that's useful. And And final thing on that, convenience of food at home, big, big, big in COVID times. And you know, we spoke about rise of meal kits, food personalization. I think we sort of flagged up the likes of Oddbox, who actually we had their CEO on the show last year as well. That seems to me to have been a massive trend, which is accelerating. Would you agree? Every single company seems to have some sort of subscription service now. There is some subscription service for everything. As I'm a coffee subscriber because I drink too much coffee and make my fresh beans and stuff. I probably talked about it last year. But you can think of the category and you're able to get either what you want on a monthly basis or a bi-weekly basis or, or whatever. But companies have realized that this at-home life is becoming so important. But what some of the developments you're starting to see, though, are better partnerships between, let's say, the coffee technology brand and a coffee supplier. And you'll mm-hmm. start to see some of it is like branding partnerships and some of it is genuine. If you buy this coffee machine or if you buy this, uh, I know, cooker, you're going to also, you can get offers, you can get for foods that can go into it. And I think that brands have realized this as a huge area. And what I, I think we may have spoken about it in the past, but if you think about also that idea of food at home, also Brands thinking about, well, what are consumers doing at home? So we think about gaming as a great example. And in games, you're able to, a lot of these games now, especially role-playing ones, you're seeing characters making meals in a game, or yeah. you're seeing you know characters eating foods in a game, and you're getting sponsorship from a live brand, putting their brand image and putting their product into a game. And then again, you're getting consumers to buy you know, even through in-game shops. 
So it's pretty bonkers that, that some of yeah. the moves that brands are making because of the in-home life that we now, well, a lot of us now live. We definitely are seeing that idea of we are going to move back to offices, but most companies now have a, a flexible working policy. You could yeah. probably say in, in most countries, you're, you have a flexible working policy. And in the past, it would have been five days a week in the office, maybe one day at home. And now we're that. So you've got to hit consumers more and more while they're sitting at their desk in their home offices. And we're seeing that across the board. Thanks. I, God, I wonder where it will go. Because, I mean, you think about the metaverse, which is you know <laughs> the hot topic. And I was talking to somebody the other day. They're saying, oh, you know, now actually you've got people can buy real estate in the metaverse and actually pay real money. And I wonder what the effect of that's going to be on food. But like you say, if it's happening in gaming already... I can fully well imagine that you'll be watching people in the metaverse eating and consuming and you'll be able to buy them and all that kind of great stuff. Brand launches probably with our VR headsets on where they launch it through the metaverse and someone's going to be making some sort of lickable device that you can taste the sparkling drink that that brand is launching. It's coming. You see stuff, whether they've, they've really hit yet, but this sort of technology is appearing and... Uh, these, you know, the metaverse is a good example of where brands have a huge opportunity to hit consumers and sell direct through those services rather than go to the supermarket. And then it's delivered to their homes in all sorts of different technological ways. So let's move away from the past, which was only, Mm -hmm. we're only really talking about last year and more towards this year and beyond in terms of trends. So the big areas for EIT Food, our organization this year are Food sustainability, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. including the likes of sustainable agriculture, aquaculture, and the circular economy. Also, of course, alternative proteins, health, which we've mentioned, and then finally sort of trust and transparency. So if I can just kind of, for a, a while, contain mm-hmm. your uh, your trends to some of these. So sure. from a sustainability perspective, so I was reading about food trends online, and I think it was Bid Food that highlighted, that I think this is becoming a term, the Greta effect. And the, <laughs> the, yeah, and the focus on sustainability is obviously continuing to grow, suggesting that consumers are going to adopt environmentally friendly lifestyle choices, including diets. And, you know, we've seen that through some of our own research with regarding Gen Z's as well. So food sustainability for us on the podcast has been huge and we've spoken about it a lot. But I'd be really interested to get your view on the latest trends in food sustainability. So what are the great innovations that you'll see coming in this space and which companies do you you Mm. feel are really embracing this with what they do and the technologies that they're using? I love the term the Greta effect before we get started because I'm a big skeptic about consumers and I think the majority of consumers just want to get by, see their families, walk their dogs, have a reasonably happy life, have good friends and go the day to day. And of course, the noise that we see in the media about, you know, the Greta Thunberg effect or the Greta effect and the need for climate change impact and the activism that we see, I think for the majority of consumers, a lot of them actually just want to get by. And so I would actually argue with the term. I don't think it's going to be consumers might drive the conversation. I don't think it's going to be consumers that are actually going to save us when it comes to things like climate change and some of these bigger issues. You're right. When you talk about, you know, what companies are driving this, it's going to be the companies taking a decision and saying whether or not 
now or in 10 years, if we're going to survive this, or we're going to, you know, governments eventually are going to make legislation that this is going to come anyway, the cost of meat's going to go up because there's going to be legislation. All these things, therefore, we have to go in this direction. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that the consumers will move because the companies are giving them the availability of those new products. Does that, and does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, so let's use an example then. So you mentioned before about sustainable agriculture, more specifically regenerative agriculture. And we, again, we've spoken about that a lot on the show and we do a lot of work with regenerative agriculture and EIT food. You mentioned that this is being adopted by bigger brands because, you know, regenerative has and, you know, been traditionally seen as quite small scale. Do you feel that that is now becoming a bit more mainstream? If you look at, and I think a good example, if you look at a plant-based milk brand and look at the history of a plant-based milk brand and you go back 15 years, on the shelf we had what? Soy and Mm -hmm. almond. Mm -hmm. And then we've realized that there's a whole load of questions about soy that some consumers don't like. And then we look at, you know, the almond came out as an alternative that might have tasted good, but then they realized that it's got a huge amount of water usage. And then we shift to other nuts and there's potentially, you know, some nuts that are better than others. And then we've shifted to oats and we start to go, okay, oats is a better ingredient, not just because obviously there are no animals involved, but then they think about water usage, land usage, the fact that it's better for the soil. It doesn't scar land. It doesn't remove the opportunity to keep plant. So the industries are moving that way already. If you think about the consumer, was it them that said, I don't want to have soy or almond? Or was it the industry that said, we have a better option? And they put the tagline and said, and also it's better for the environment. And mm-hmm. then while the media and the noise was out there that we need to do better, the brands were launching. I think it's the best example of how you start to see the industry move. And the number of soy products are slowly declining or stabilizing. And then the increase of these new ingredients, legumes and oats that are appearing that are better for the, not just for us, because they're full of functional you know, claims, but they're also healthy for the industry, for the soil, for the ground. Mm. For So I think that's, a, that's probably the, the key example right now where, where you've already seen it shift. I'm sure we'll talk about alternative meats as well in a moment. But if you're looking at brands in general, they're running out of land. So it's not even, they, they have to solve this problem. So you're seeing a shift in how they run farms, things like crop rotation, and they're rotating on a monthly, bi-monthly, yearly basis, different ingredients. And there's an idea that certain ingredients you can grow a single ingredient, but once you use that ingredient in on that piece of farmland, I'm trying to make this a yeah, mo- really, monocropping, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's not great in the long term, but if you're able to plant 10 different ingredients on the same patch of land over time and it, and it rolls and rolls, it's so much better for that land and you can continue to rotate. And it also means that you can also move with the trends as well as new trends appear over the next few years, new ingredients appear. So that's something that we're seeing a lot of related to sort of soil. Yeah. Um, they, we're seeing technologies where you can actually read. So that it's, we call it a future bridge remote soil sensing, which is one of our trends tracks looking at regenerative agriculture. And we're able to sort of understand soil carbon, you know, organic matter in there, the micronutrient level in that patch of soil. So you're able to start to understand, you know, 
how good that soil will be in growing something. And if you're reading, you know, you're getting poor numbers, then maybe it's that instead of focusing on growing, you actually focus on regenerating that soil before you destroy it. And so we're seeing a mixture of technologies and choosing certain ingredients that are better and mixing that together to get to a, a, you know, a better future. Yeah. It's interesting you say all of that. I mean, this is absolutely something that we kind of on our side in EIT Food, we saw coming, I think, and we've mm. there's been a big focus on sort of soil health and we're seeing some startups. Actually, we had a couple of startups on the show tail end of last year talking about the latest tech in regenerative, you know, getting to the place where you have sensors on plants, which are actually watching the nutrients and making sure that, you know, you're you know, targeting the right nutrients and you then you have drones over the top which potentially are going to be communicating with them and it's all becoming like a really highly technological space which of course is helping the soil and the environment. So, I mean, for us, it's super exciting. I don't think any conversation about climate change will be complete unless we start to talk about COP. So I mentioned COP26 at the start and I think it's kind of put food on the agenda because it, it it wasn't really there. It wasn't talked about much before. So we had the UN Food System Summit uh, last year, which I think kind of op- opened the world's eyes up to the importance of food systems when we talk about climate change. And now, you know, going to the road of COP27, you know, you've got the likes of uh, UN Special Envoy Dr. Agnes Calabata stressing that there's a quote here, the intersection between climate and food is profound. If we do not address food systems-driven climate emissions, we simply cannot make our 1.5-degree target. And it would be interesting to get your thoughts on, you know, what what you might expect to see in the road to COP27 or anything that you'd love to see coming off the back of it in terms of, you know, climate change and food systems. So things that I, I really would love to see. I want to see governments making the price of these new products, plant-based products, or cultivated meat, which we haven't got into too much, this sort of cell-based technology that's appearing, I want to talk about in a minute. I want to see governments take notice and go, okay, we need to invest to a point where these new innovations that are going to have a drastic impact on climate emissions from the food industry become cheaper and mainstream so that consumers have a genuine alternative to buying, you know, you can still buy sort of chicken drumsticks, you know, chicken legs in a supermarket for like two pounds for 10 drumsticks. And, you know, you're still able to pay a tiny price for meat products when, you know, I'm a meat eater. I I have a load of plant-based food because I enjoy it, but we want to get to a place where it doesn't matter whether consumers are shouting about it or whether they're, they're vegan or not that the the alternatives that are available and that taste good and that, that cook well and that they are genuinely cheaper and they get to market as fast as possible and we want governments that come together to sort of push legislation that maybe it is putting taxes on the meat industry globally and looking at those countries that have those highest emissions and finding ways to supplement the industries that are going to help fight climate change and if that's quite a strong <laughs> point but i would love to see you know governments looking at those solutions rather than just shouting about the fact that it's really bad yeah because if i think isn't it i think it is it is cattle the number one carbon issue is it cattle or or vehicles it's one of those two and we discussed yeah, this when I, we I before mean, 
Yeah, I know that um, the food system, you know, the production of food, you know, in general is one of the greatest uh, contributors to climate change, uh, up to almost 30%, I think it is. And of course, cattle is a, you know, and production of cattle is is a big part of that. So yeah, it's definitely up there. And of course, this is driving that push towards alternative proteins. I mean, I know that you're, you're keen to get to this. So mm-hmm. why don't we jump into it? Because of course, the, the two are linked. So, you know, we've spoken on the, the podcast about alternative proteins a lot. You know, we've had conversations about fermentation tanks, plant-based proteins, lab-grown meat. We've spoken about microalgae. And then even like one of the podcasts we had, which is super fascinating, we talk about giant mushrooms known as chicken of the woods, which are now being produced at a, you know, a more commercial scale, which, you know, they are naturally occurring and taste like chicken. So we've kind of covered a lot of this, but out of the alternative options available, which ones are going to trend and be adopted by consumers the quickest? Quite simply, if you want to get all consumers taking this situation seriously, you need a product that is the same in taste and texture and look and feel in uh, in enjoyment, in the way you cook it, that's identical to meat. And therefore, the, the cell-based, the cultivated meat industry is likely going to be key player in solving this problem. Because for a consumer, they quite frankly don't care. They, Or hopefully we get to a place where they quite frankly don't care that it was made in a lab or made... Do you, you, do you know, think slug- that's the case? Do you think that... Because I know, I think last time we spoke about the fact that sort of science and food was and COVID was normalizing that feel for consumers. It's still icky. That- it's still really icky for consumers that they that a piece of meat has been made in a lab. The question for some consumers, is it more icky than than slaughtering an animal? Mm-hmm. And and there's there's gonna be, you know, what either the noise about animal welfare will grow and that will put consumers off to some consumers, but some could it, it if we get to a place where on the shelf the steak that was made in a lab is the same price or cheaper than the steak that was made by killing a cow, a lot of consumers will switch because it really mm-hmm. it hits their pocket. And it, once again, it's about how consumers want to have an easy life, feed their kids and enjoy themselves. And therefore, this industry, it will take time to bed in. It will take some time, but we're getting very close. And I might talk about a couple of innovations for products to be like for like in price. But that's where we're going. And I think that's the area, the cell-based industry is going to have the biggest impact. Okay, and so you, you give us some examples then. You know what? Who do you think's really nailing this right now? I'll talk about a couple of startups first, and then you'll see sort of some of the investors going into this. The largest funding ever in the clean meat industry was a firm. I think they're based in Israel, but they're now a global firm called Future Meat. Mm-hmm. They had a three hundred forty-seven million dollar funding towards the end of last year. This was funding so that they can basically build a huge lab right. to wow. effectively grow this, this product, these sort of cell-based products. The idea is that companies like Tyson Foods, I think who was one of the investors, they can, and they're one of the big US meat companies, which is really key. So that's interesting. So there you've got meat companies who are now investing in cell-based, so alternative meats. Without, without a shadow of a doubt, there that's where a lot of the, the, the investment and growth is coming from. So what FutureMeet are doing, and they're not providing an end product, they're providing their technology and their factory for, it'll be they'll sell to other companies, their technologies. 
for them to create a product made out of cells that they then grow that eventually can be grown into a, a piece of steak. As in, this is the most bonkers part of the industry. And then what you're getting of various techniques to grow these cell-based products. So you're seeing 3D printing growing these products. You're seeing, I think I saw another, we had another one recently called Metech 3D. And right. they're, they're using a, a bioprinting method to basically print cultured cells. And right. then they can build, they sort of, build them up. They take a cell from a cow or a chicken, and then they kind of grow fat. They grow muscle. So they grow those things separately because the whole problem with the plant-based industry is without fat and without muscle, you have to add in other things to make it taste good. If you're actually able to grow fat from an animal source, the idea is that you take both of these and you're able to print so that you can actually replicate what that cut might have been. So potentially you're going to end up with a fattier piece of meat or a leaner piece of meat because of the the way you've been able to print it, which is crazy, right? It, Personalizing it, it is. It, but- it, it is, but at the same time, I mean, you know, we're seeing this a lot. I mean, so we've got a, a startup working with us, Redefine Meat, who's who's gone leaps and bounds, and they're actually doing exactly what you're talking about in terms of those different cuts, but they're using plant-based. So they're actually 3D printing with plant-based to get that texture and, um, you know, taste profile, which, you know, of course, then takes it even further. You know, if you can create meat products which look, taste, feel exactly like the real thing but not actually using meat, then surely that's the future, isn't it? Yes, it has to be. It has to be because the the global population, I think, is still growing. We're going to have to feed them. And if we find a way to grow meat without needing cattle and animals on farms across the world to feed, this is going to be such a a much better, lower value way to feed the population. Hmm. So it's not just a, this is the future. It has to be. Yeah, I mean, I think this debate, we probably do it a disservice if we don't talk about alternative proteins in its broader sense and so not just alternative meats but um, mm-hmm. you know alternative protein so any real trends and innovations that you're seeing you know in the alternative protein space i think you were mentioning to me before about chickpeas for example it's my favorite ingredient you've probably known this um, oh, well you're you're a big fan of hummus i think you and um, I have yeah that we've common. discussed this before one of the main things they're looking at separate from the fact that we need a meat alternative is looking at proteins and alternative ingredients to sort of animal-derived products, but can fulfill the consumer with taste, with texture, and also the kind of health demands that those consumers want. So they're looking across the, the industry and also be sustainable for the planet. So you will get ingredients within the sort of plant protein space. And it's, you know, chickpea might be one of them, but stuff like we're seeing more things like fava beans, mung mm-hmm. beans. Yep. We know that oats and peas and all sorts of, of ingredients that are coming to the fore that maybe before you you didn't necessarily see them in food production at a, a massive crazy scale that are now really being used as much as possible. You see ingredients like hemp, which obviously has its uh, links to CBD and obviously as a new ingredient that consumers like. But again, it's back to that mental health claim that they're looking for, but from a natural source. So there's a lot going on in this space. I think mung bean is one of those ones that I quite like the look of because I think it's we're seeing lots of innovations in in egg alternatives coming from mung beans as well. Is that right? Actually, that's so if we look at some of the developments that we've been seeing, mung beans is being used. I think I need to remember if in Europe, whether mung beans is still is now listed 
as an ingredient that's safe or it's just been done. I think there's a brand called Just Egg and I think they've got EFSA approval. I think they use mung beans as their ingredients for their plant-based eggs. So it's all of these possible ingredients where they're looking for a solution to a problem. And that might be the ingredient, may have been natural ingredient, was bad for the planet. You know, like palm oil might be one. What's an alternative that they can find? Honey might be another one. If we use too much honey, what effect on the bee? Can we find other ingredients where we can make a product that replicates it? And then mung beans, another one which can be used to create, I think they mix it with stuff like turmeric because you want a bit of yellow to mm-hmm. make eggs. So Amazing. there's a lot of ingredients that are appearing that we're spotting that are going to have an impact. And then there's still this topic of, we've talked about algae and seaweeds, the topic of insects, which mm. we keep talking about this. I think there's a, it's going to be harder for them to sell in insects than it will to sell in lab-grown cultured meat. I, re- mm, I think it's going to be really tough. But insects are a huge opportunity from a protein and sustainability as a source of sustainability. Ingredients like, I think we have the black soldier fly, like crickets, fruit flies, grasshoppers, mealworms, all of these sort of insect ingredients that, you know, Future Bridge have a big trend map and they they sort of track all of those ingredients as opportunities and, and growing spaces. So it's an industry to look at. We haven't yet got to the place where the marketing has solved the problem of people are eating insects, mm. which they need to get to. Yeah, um, um, we have the same. I mean, we've we've got a number of startups in EIT Food who are into this space, and you know, it we we do see it as a growing opportunity. And it's you know, people are talking about well, you know, before consumers really accept it, there may be some steps before that. So I think you, you're starting to see like cricket flour, mealworm flour, which is then used as a protein ingredient in other foods, for example. So I think that probably reduces the ick factor a bit. And then, you know, we've had Better Origin, one of our startups on the show previously, and they're actually using the black soldier fly to digest food waste, which they're then feeding to salmon. So actually, it's a totally natural process, but they're just accelerating it. So again, I think insects in the food system is a really fascinating area. And I think they probably have a, a much bigger role to play in, in the future, for sure. And, it, and as you just mentioned, in in feeding, maybe not humans, but the rest. Of, so if you're going to have animals that are going to be fed, we've got a patent that we tracked. The company's uh, called Chinhan. And they had a patent that was filed, I think, about a year or so ago that looks at placing, using insects to create healthy snacks for animals. Mm-hmm. I think they're using insects like worms, grasshoppers, silkworms, white worms, crickets, beetle larvae. I'm just having a look at this pattern here and basically using them as, as great functional content to feed, you know, pets and animals. And the same with fish, you know, using seaweed and insects to feed fish in the fishing industry. So the opportunity to maybe not feed us as of yet, but animals probably won't have an ick factor. And there's mm. many of them, you know, feeding pets. The amount that we consume by feeding our pets, I'm sure is a big problem. Of course, you've got to get past the pet owner loving their pet more than they love their children issue. Um, but we are this this huge opportunity to start maybe there and then build into, you know, feeding humans. But yeah, the insect this is growing. I think it's going to take some more time, but it's going to have a huge impact over the next 15, 20 years. 
we've spoken about climate change, we've spoken about alternative proteins. Let, let's talk, well, we've also spoken about consumer behaviour, and I think this n naturally leads us towards health. Mm. So we did see this as a big trend last year. What do you think about the big innovations coming out in the health space that will be going big in 2022 and beyond? So there are some sort of smaller claims that are appearing that I'll mention first. I think we're seeing them in supplement level stuff. If we think about what we've been doing over the past couple of years, we've been sitting at home watching TV. We've been, a lot of people haven't been getting out and about as much. It's affected their sleep. They're having mental health issues. They might be struggling. So things like sleep support, eye health, some of these sort of smaller claims that we've seen over the last few years have been starting to grow. I think that they're going to continue to have a really, really big impact. Whether we'll see them only in the supplement space for now, or are we going to see them in food products, you know, over the next few sort of months and years, that'll be interesting. Because at the moment, you know, can a food product, does it have the legislation to allow them to put sort of eye health claims? How many of these ingredients do you need to make an eye health claim? But some of those claims are going to be growing. So what brands and functional food brands are looking at are, what are the areas that where consumers are struggling? And try and target them. So mental health is another one, but what aspects? Well, things like focus, things like tiredness, things like um, joy, bringing some joy, energy, some of these areas that consumers are really starting to understand themselves more. These are going to be claims that we'll, we'll pick up and find ingredients. And then coupled with the technologies that we now have, so digitization of health, i.e. consumers can tell apps to how to personalize their health for them. So they'll tell apps, this is what I'm like. This is how much I sleep. This is what I do on a daily basis. This is how much, you know, the type of job I have, et cetera, et cetera. Send my blood sample in maybe, but that's still at a very early stage. Send a urine sample in, sell it, you know, to these companies where they actually say to you, you personally are lacking this and you have lots of this. And so Consumers, it might not be that they get a supplement that's designed for them, but they'll learn more about their health needs. And they might diagnose themselves or they might go to a, an institution to be diagnosed for them. But that targeted nutrition mm. and the widening of, of what's healthy, and I think in the past it was what? We needed some protein, we needed some fiber, and we didn't want to have too much fat and calories. I think if you go back to what, the 90s, that's about as far as health was probably. And now we have this huge range of diets, but also understanding that we can target all sorts of health issues with different food products. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, targeted nutrition seems to just be growing and growing and growing. And, you know, it's interesting that you, you mentioned about like consumer awareness, which seems to be driving that, which is fascinating. One last thing on health. So we, on our last podcast, actually, so we were talking about ideal diets from around the world. And, and one of the issues that emerged is that certainly in the, in the Western world, at least, you need to be wealthy to be healthy was one of the things that came out. And do you think that the latest tech and innovations are going to change that and maybe more democratise, you know, health for consumers? It depends on what how we define health. And I think the big problem is that I actually, I follow somebody on a social media and he's called the fitness chef. Mm -hmm. And his shtick is to say, there's all these diets around the world, all these things that we're doing. And there's so many of them from 
ketos to, you know, intermittent fasting to all these kind of diets that then often have products and food products linked to them with claims that cost a fortune in a lot of cases. And his point is that it's all of these things is false. It's just about having bad. And we've always come back to this, having balance, having a mixture of ingredients. It's fine to have a pizza. It's just not fine to have 10 pizzas in a row. It's fine to have a, a full blown, you know, hot chocolate with cream on. Just don't have, you know, seven days a week. And so d- democratizing health, the idea that health is really expensive. I think the problem is, is in the media at the moment and in, in the industry that the stuff that are, are linking up with health claims and health trends, that is expensive. And it's too expensive for most people. But we need to get back to the fact that you can buy fresh fruit and vegetables. Some will say that they're too expensive. They're not all too expensive. There's a lot on the market that are available. You know, fresh fruit and vegetables that you can buy, you know, plant-based products, which are like plant-based milks, which are virtually the same price as regular milks now. You can buy, you know, there's a whole array of healthy ingredients. And I think there's more of an education point of view that we need to help consumers in actually health is you can just eat with balance and you can you can buy the ingredients that are available and they're going to be enough and they're going to be good for you but the issue in the media and often in our research world and in brands is that they're looking for the next trend mm. so that they can often make a quick buck when actually there's a role that we need to play to support consumers in the functional health space wise words ed so maybe sometimes the latest tech and trend you don't need and actually just going back to the simple basics is going to see you through. So that's great. Thank you. Um, Ed, we're coming to the end of the yeah. show now and it's, as always, a fascinating discussion. But I wanted to just give you a bit of a chance to wow us with anything. So uh, outside of what we've already spoken about, are there any exciting like technologies coming out any startups that you've seen which you're particularly excited about or have just blown your mind? Anything that you think that our listeners would love to hear about? So I like the fact that consumers can have access to industries and sort of to understand where their food products come from. And we've talked about it kind of a lot. I'm going to give two examples. One is my favorite food example. I mentioned this before, but this is, I love what we're seeing in sort of blockchain, that what we're able to do is really track the history of a product in much more detail. They know where it was grown, how it was grown, how it was delivered, where it's been, how it got to a supermarket, how it got to their front door, and then they eat it. And then they also know that. So I love the fact that this isn't about, you know, a new technology or this is just about understanding where your food has come from. And then you would talk about empathy. We're going to get empathy and and understanding of the industry much, much more effectively if consumers sort of understand their food industry. So that's one. But then I'm going to talk about my favorite thing that I learned in the last two months from FutureBridge. We've seen a a startup called, I think it's a startup, a company called Sundial Foods. They've raised $4 million. I think they've had some funding from Nestle. And they've been able to invent chickpea-based chicken wings using a a technology called mechanical fractionation. And it's bonkers. The idea is that these plant-based chicken wings have the same texture as animal meat. I know I've come back to that meat side of things, and said, but it's more that we're seeing brands like Nestle supporting on this space. So, you know, two very different things, but definitely some of the funky things that we're seeing. So using, you know, these as opportunities that we're seeing. Chickpea to chicken. You heard it here first. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and again, my favorite ingredient. And also I do eat meat and it's one of my favorite things. 
are you sure this isn't something that you're just you're just pushing your own agenda here, Ed? It's all about the chickpea. Future Bridge team spotted it. I'm not even going to make claims. <laughs> and they wrote about it and they showed us the, the sort of patent and research behind it. And it's pretty funky. And I really want to try them. Love it. Yeah, me too. I'm also a big fan of chickpea. So whenever that comes out, let me know. Ed, thank you so much once again for your time today. It's always a total pleasure and is always super interesting. So tell us, where can listeners go to find out a little bit more about what you do and what uh, Future Bridge does? So... Firstly, you can find I'm on social media platforms and stuff, but FutureBridge, go to futurebridge.com, which is obviously the main location to find out about what we do. My team, we we offer two sort of, I guess, products to companies out there, R&D teams, brands, manufacturers, which is one is a subscription product tracking things like alternative proteins, packaging, industrial food, manufacturing, sugar reduction technologies, looking at technologies, patents, and, and new developments in those areas. But then we look at a whole bunch of what we call strategic growth fields across the whole food industry, from functional foods to agriculture. So our team are doing sort of custom project and also syndicated to deliver to clients and really help them with finding, whether it's finding companies to invest in or M&A opportunities, but also being able to understand what's next, what could they invest in, what could they could they try out in their food products and really helping them stay on the pulse of this area of the industry. So as I said, I'm not the scientist, but my whole team are, and they're pretty awesome. So I would say, look us up, uh, Future Bridge. We've got lots of stuff coming. We've got a really cool webinar coming up as well in February, uh, which is looking at early signals in the industry that are going to really have an impact over the next year. I think the one thing I really want to make clear is I think 2022 will be the year that we see cultivated meat hit the shelves. And that's something I might explore in that webinar. So thank wow. you for letting me do a little plug. Yeah, um, no worries. Grateful. Well, and, thank uh, you for all yeah. the info. And uh, yeah, no, definitely sign me up to the webinar. That, that sounds great. I love all that kind of stuff. So thanks, Ed. And uh, again, big thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. And thank you everybody out there for listening. So this has been the Food Fight podcast as ever. If you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu and please join the conversation via hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT Food. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so that you never miss an episode. That's it for now. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>